Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwynn. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good fall weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. You can celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around you. Every Sunday, you'll hear from chefs and artisan food makers, farmers, authors, travel experts, sommeliers, and tastemakers on this show who are passionate about everything delicious. It's my goal to feed your soul, so I hope that you will stay tuned for this hour of delicious conversation. Please know that I'm always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com, and I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And you can hear radio podcasts of shows that you might have missed on iTunes, FeedBurner, and Blueberry. Just search Chef Jamie Gwen. With that said, I am planning for a ghoulishly good Halloween tomorrow, and I'm sure that you are as well. I'll actually be on HSN, and I hope that you will tune in. But what's a Halloween party without caramel apples, right? Now, I make caramel apples every year for Halloween, and everyone always loves them. I mean, who doesn't love a delicious, chewy, generously coated in caramel, chocolate-covered, sprinkled with tasty toppings, caramel apple, right? I think that when you take your first bite, it's like simply pure bliss. It's that buttery stretch of homemade caramel, dark brown, and so delicious, And making caramel apples can be daunting, so I have a tutorial for you on the lusciousness that is a homemade caramel apple, and I hope that you'll take this lesson through the holiday season. Homemade caramel makes all the difference in a great caramel apple. It turns an ordinary caramel apple into a fancy gourmet over-the-top caramel apple, in my opinion, and a salted caramel apple is the ultimate, but more on that in just a moment. Now, when it comes to apples, any variety, any size works. You might like the little miniature apples, like the lady apples or the crab apples, and they're a delicious two-bite treat, and they make a, a really sweet and whimsical presentation. If you want to go big or go home, then you'll use a great big oversized apple or just the standard size in your favorite varietal. Now for tart lovers, I say go get, uh, go Granny Smith rather. And then for sweeties, you should try the Rome apple or for a mix of tart and sweet, there is truly nothing better than a honey crisp apple. No matter the apple that you choose though, I like to give the apples a good rinse under hot water before I start the process. And then I place the apples in a bowl with say four cups of water and a tablespoon of vinegar. The vinegar removes that waxy residue on the outside of the apples, and that will ensure that your caramel will stick because there's nothing worse than making a homemade caramel and starting the process to find that the caramel just runs off the apples. And it is most often from the waxy residue that most apples you will find at retail, uh, rather than if you pick them yourself, and if you did, well then lucky you, are coated with. And again, that coating is easily removed with a vinegar solution. Now for the caramel, 
you can shortcut a caramel apple recipe and use individually wrapped squares of caramel, but unwrapping them is grueling and torturous to me. Uh, So if you're looking for a quick fix, you can uh, find caramel melts in many stores and they're nice and easy. But once again, homemade caramel that you make and add a generous teaspoon of salt to makes an outrageously delicious finished product. Now for toppings, the opportunities are really endless. You can caramel dip the apple. You can caramel and chocolate dip the apples. You can caramel dip and chocolate drizzle the apples. And then you can roll the apples in just about everything, like toasted nuts, pecans, or cashews, to live the high life. I love toasted coconut on a caramel apple. You can use crushed Heath bar, uh, even leftover Halloween candy for a candy bar Halloween apple. Um, Let's say graham cracker crumbs with the caramel or crushed saltines, which is really good. You can do crushed Oreos for cookies and cream. You can do crushed butterfingers for the ultimate peanut butter flavor. Um, Every kid loves sprinkles. And then I love a rocky road. So chopped mini marshmallows, chopped nuts, and milk chocolate chips on the outside of a caramel apple. Totally over the top, I know, but so good. And when you make your caramel from scratch, you do need a caramel thermometer or a candy thermometer as it's most often known. The caramel needs to be heated to 250 degrees or it will be too runny or too hard and it won't coat the apples properly. And if you don't have a candy thermometer, it's really worth the investment. You can pick one up for about 10 bucks. Now, when it comes to sticks for a caramel apple, uh, popsicle sticks work fine, but so do the cheap wooden chopsticks. And I happen to like those a lot. They're a little different and unique. And then remember that you really only have about 30 to 45 seconds before the caramel starts to set enough to make coating the caramel apples uh, a little more difficult. So you want to roll them or dip them in whatever toppings that you're planning to, as soon as you let that excess caramel drip off the apple after dipping. And it often takes an apple or two to get the hang of coating them so that the caramel is still soft and, and melted. But that the good thing is that um, the trial and the error is the most delicious part. <laughs> now, my most important chef's note to making great caramel apples at home is that refrigerating the caramel apples right after you coat and top them really encourages the caramel to stay put. So I line a baking sheet with wax paper or a silicone baking mat. And as soon as I finished a few apples, I put them straight into the fridge and I keep them there for a couple of hours. And then when you're looking to put them out on your Halloween buffet or your uh, holiday, uh, you know, feast, then they do tend to hold longer if they've been refrigerated right from the get-go. You can find my definitely a treat caramel apple recipe at chefjamie.com. And I hope you'll send me a picture via email at jamie at chefjamie.com so that I can see your caramel apple masterpieces. Okay, it's time for some food news that you can use. 
Talk about making a difference. Today, more than 45 million Americans rely on food stamps to eat. 23 million of those people living in food deserts have little or no access to locally produced fruit and vegetables. So kudos to Michelle Niskin. He's the world-renowned chef, three times James Beard Foundation Award winner, that is changing those statistics. He's created a healthy, sustainable food system that is affordable to everyone. And the program is in full effect. I read a wonderful piece about uh, the chef just this past week. And it's not only that he's making a difference to feed the world, but here in the U.S., it means big business for farmers. So um, Chef Michelle has been on a mission since 2007 to create food equality, and he has launched something called Wholesome Wave. It's a nonprofit organization that designs initiatives for low-income families to eat healthier, and in turn, it helps small and mid-sized farms across the country generate revenue. The organization is currently serving over 200,000 people in 42 states across this great country of ours, and I wanted to give a kudos to Chef Michelle Niskin for bettering those in need and in turn bettering farmers and benefiting the farming community as well. You can learn more and do your part at wholesomewave.org. I love a chef that is making a difference. Speaking of making a difference, we are going to bake up and make some delectable cookies coming up. Dory Greenspan, the much beloved pastry chef and baker, is sharing a sneak peek into her newest cookbook release called Cookies. Also, we're talking spooky, haunted, fabulous trivia and sharing the highlights for Halloween coming up with writer and Halloween expert Lisa Morton. Plus, before the end of the hour, we will highlight the beauty of Chinese cuisine in a new book release from Keelum Chan called China, the Cookbook. It's really an encyclopedia and quite extraordinary, and you'll want to stay tuned for the delicious conversation as it abounds right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away. We're celebrating the sweeter side of life. Chef Jamie Gwen here. I am beyond excited that Dory Greenspan is once again gracing this radio show. Her renowned baking career has spanned more than 30 years. Dory is, of course, the much beloved baker with 11 cookbooks under her belt and accolades galore. New York Times bestselling author, James Beard award winner three times over, and induction into the who's who of food and beverage in America. Over the course of her baking career, Dory Greenspan has created more than 
300 cookie recipes, yet she had never written a book about them until now. Every cookie had to be so special that it begged to be made again and again. And her best cookie recipes are culminated in a beautiful new cookbook release from Dory Greenspan entitled Dory's Cookies and Dory is here to dish. Hello, my friend. I am so glad to have you back. I am so happy to be back with you again. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I'm so excited about this book. Um, I always knew I wanted to write a cookbook. I just didn't know when, and now it's when. It's a cookie book when is what it is. This is your 11th or 12th? 12th book. This is your 12th book. This is my 12th book. book, yeah. And it is really a culmination of, like, I call it career cookies. It's... The cookies you've mastered that everybody loves and begs for over a a lot of years. Yeah, but you know, Jamie, it's an interesting, it's a culmination of, as you said, more than 30 years of baking. But it's not a collection of Hmm. 30 years worth of cookies. What I decided to do, I thought at some point that I would do kind of a greatest hits cookie cookbook. Yes. But... As I started to think about it, I realized that I really wanted to learn something new about cookies so that I could teach something new about cookies. And so this book has some of my all-time favorites, but most of the cookies are brand new. Like 90-plus percent of the cookies in the book are brand new. I've never published them before. I think it's extraordinary in this book blessed career that you've had that I'm grateful for my own as well, that you are ever inventing, ever learning. And before we get into cookies, it makes me think, it leads me to a conversation. I have learned so much from you. I have mastered the canelay from the last time that you were on the radio. And it really is a testament to the fact that no matter how skilled you are, a chef or a baker, there is something to learn. There is a technique and a practice that you can really embrace. I mean, I, I bought silicone molds. I make cannelay that now my friends, you know, will turn their car around to come over for. I love this. Thank you for telling me this. But, you know, I think this is true in all of food. It feels so good to have a dish that's your own, to have a specialty of the house. I mean, there are cookies that I make, for instance, the World Peace Cookie, which is one of the greatest hits. I had published it before, but I couldn't imagine a cookie book without it. And in fact, it's on the cover of Dory's Cookies. But people, when they come to visit me, they expect that they're going to get a World Peace Cookie. And I love to give it to them. Mm. For many, many years... I made madeleines after every dinner party. It was my after dinner, um, my after dessert dessert. It was the last thing I would serve people. And I have a new recipe for madeleines in the, the new book. But I love that you worked on something, made it your own, feel really confident about it, and that your friends have come to know you for it. Um, this is, Jamie, this is why I write cookbooks. So that something like this can happen. Well, but it, and it's a credit to you. And I think that that passion is contagious, that you've woven your love of baking and your generous share into 
so many of our lives. And it is really a learning curve for me every day to embrace something new. I love that this new book, Dory's Cookies, opens with techniques and tricks and tips. So to make us better cookie bakers, can you give us some essentials, the the chilling the dough, rotating baking sheets, cooling tricks? Right. So first is to preheat your oven and really preheat it. Preheated. This I learned from an oven repair um, person. He came and he said, do you just put your stuff in the minute the bell goes off and says the oven is at temperature? And I said, yep. And yep. he said, don't do that again. Preheat your oven and after whatever signal your oven gives you that it's up to temperature, wait another 10 minutes or so. How and I realized that this was really important advice for cookies because you want your oven to be really at temperature, not just up there, just got there, and you're going to open the door to put your cookie sheet in and close it and lose your temperature. You want it to be solidly at whatever the temperature is because Mm. cookies bake for such a short time. So that was a great tip. No doubt. Yes, if you've got two cookie sheets in the oven on two racks, turn your sheets around front to back, change the rack from top to bottom, Even the fanciest, most expensive ovens have hot spots. And this is one way of avoiding having all the cookies in the back left hand (laughs) side of your cookie sheet um, (laughs) overdone, if that's where your hot spot is. And also, treat yourself to some cookie scoops. Um, I find, I love cookie scoops. I have a whole wardrobe of them. I have probably as many cookie scoops as I do scarves. But um, when you scoop dough with a scoop, you get exactly the same amount of cookie dough for each cookie. And that means that all of your cookies will be baked at the same time, and they'll also be the same size. And little kids won't argue about who gets the bigger cookies. (laughs) The the brilliance of uniformity. (laughs) (laughs) So those are three little tips for cookie baking. Very good ones, in fact. Um, Okay, where to start? I I, I would think from a recipe perspective, if we could start by dishing on cocktail cookies, I cannot wait to make Old Bay pretzel and cheese cookies. So I had so much fun. The book has, the majority of the cookies in the book are sweet. You know, there are bar cookies and biscotti. I love biscotti. I love anything crunchy. Yes, me too. There are all the cookies from the, sh- the cookie boutique that my son Joshua and I um, had, Burn Cell. There are holiday cookies for all kinds of holidays. And then there's this section on cocktail cookies. And I just, I got a little crazy here because I was having so much fun. Hmm. These are really grown-up cookies. They're cookies made to be had with white wine or sparkling wine, Mm. some with red wine, some with cognac or armagnac. And the cookie that you talked about, the Old Bay Pretzel and Cheese Cookie, I thought about that cookie when I was thinking about what would go with beer. It's a great cookie with beer. And I know the cookies and beer are not exactly everybody, the first thought that comes to mind. Oh, I think you're very on trend, Dory. I really do. I love that your cookies talk. 
because (laughs) that is the truest testament to a fine cookie. It is an outstanding selection, over 170 recipes that will grant your every cookie wish. It is the very much anticipated 12th cookbook release from famed baker Dory Greenspan. And as the New York Times says, and I agree, it is the ultimate cookie book by a culinary guru. Get your hands on it before it is gone. It is Dory Greenspan's new cookie book entitled Dory's Cookies. And trust me, you are going to want to bake from this book. Dory, I have always very much admired your passion, um, your continued success, and your tremendous love of all things sweet. And I can't tell you how flattered and honored I am every time that you um, come by and grace this show with your presence. So thank you. Jamie, thank Mm, you. I love being with you. Well, thank Thank you. Thank you so much. Congratulations. The book is beautiful, and I can't wait to share it in the form of almond crescents for all my friends. Go for it. (laughs) Go. Go home and bake. There we go. She is Dory Greenspan, uh, much beloved uh, and the much-loved baker, of course. Check it out. It's called Dory's Cookies. Actually, don't miss it. Uh, There's more sweet stuff, and we'll touch on the savory side of life as well, because you wouldn't want to touch your dial Uh, There's more delicious conversation in your radio right after this. very haunted Halloween weekend to you. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Welcome back. Lisa Morton is a screenwriter, the author of award-winning nonfiction books and a prose writer as well. And she is a Halloween expert. Her work is described as consistently dark, unsettling, and frightening. And that's just perfect for our Halloween haunt conversation today. Did you know that Halloween candy sales average about $2 billion annually in the U.S.? And that Halloween was brought to North America by immigrants from Europe to celebrate the harvest season? Well, we're digging deep to discover sweet, scary, and downright surprising trivia about the spookiest holiday of the year. And Halloween expert Lisa Morton is here to dish. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Jamie. (laughs) Happy Halloween to you. And to you as well. Well, thank you. A day early. Tomorrow is your favorite day of the year, no doubt. I would say that's probably accurate. Yes. So um, share with us, if you would, some Halloween history. Uh, Yeah, it's um, a much older holiday in many respects than most people think. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's seems to go back probably um, 2,000 years to Samhain, which was a day celebrated by the ancient Celts. The Celts were a gigantic tribe that actually had spread throughout Europe and into the British Isles and so forth, but we're mainly interested in the Irish Celts because they're the ones who seem to celebrate Samhain. Mm -hmm. And it was on October 31st for them. It was a year, a New Year celebration for them, and it was the day when they thought the veil between worlds was at its thinnest, and things could cross over from the other world, and those things were often not very nice. And so we think that's probably where Halloween gets a little bit of its sort of macabre association. For sure. Although, 
you know, interesting to, to learn about the roots, but I think even more fascinating to see the, the progression and the way that the holiday itself has sort of been, been spun or twisted to, you know, very much cater to the youngins, which I love. I mean, we've made it a more joyous holiday than some of the backstory in your um, very frightening work. Uh, but it has changed. I mean, the idea of Halloween, it's, it's become a national holiday. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's an interesting holiday to study because it does change a lot. Um, in fact, I almost think it kind of morphs every 40 years or so. Huh. And um, it has become a little bit more of an adult holiday over the last 40 years. Yes. But it's still um, a great holiday for kids. And one of the interesting things about that is that it is spreading globally now. Just within the last five or ten years, it has exploded around the globe. And I think one of the reasons for that is everybody loves dressing up their kids and seeing hmm. a cute kid in a Halloween costume. Yeah, definitely so. Do you dress up? I don't, weirdly enough. I, <laughs> I am not good at costumes, and I, I think I'm too much of a perfectionist to do anything that's not great. So um, I'm much more interested in um, decorations, and, and we're doing our yard for the first time this year. We're doing kind of a little small cemetery haunt in our front yard. Oh, I love it. And what, what do you see around the world in, in all of your Halloween research as the, the holiday itself continues to grow and morph, as you mentioned? Are there any traditional or typical customs to places outside the U.S. that you find fascinating? Well, of course, um, Dia de los Muertos yes. is, is fascinating. That's mainly celebrated in Mexico and a few of the other um, Latin American countries. And I think that's sort of starting to merge more with Halloween in certain parts of the U.S., which is very interesting. And then we get, um, in certain places, parts of Europe, we're getting an interesting sort of um, divergence in some ways, but meshing of all Saints' Day and Halloween, because Halloween, of course, is partly derived from a Catholic celebration called All Saints' Day, which happens on November 1st. And in many parts of Europe, that's still a traditional celebration where they go to cemeteries and they clean and decorate the graves of loved ones and maybe put out Mm -hmm. food or gifts for them. And uh, that is um, now sometimes in certain countries they're celebrating Halloween on the 31st and then the very sober All Saints Day on the 1st. How interesting, huh? Uh, The jack-o'-lantern, a tradition uh, worldwide? uh, It's starting to be. It wasn't up until the last few years. Um, But it's another one of those things that the whole world seems to love, the sort of whimsical, glowing orange icon There are parts, for example, of mainland China where young people have really embraced that, and they say they like it because it's much more playful than their own Hungry Ghost Festival, which is genuinely scary to them. Right. So background on the jack-o'-lantern, if you would. When did that start? When did the Pumpkin Association start with Halloween? Well, that's a that's kind of a common misconception. A lot of people think that the um, jack-o'-lantern carved into the pumpkin goes back thousands of years, but it doesn't for one simple reason, which is the pumpkin is native to America, right. and um, to, or at least to this continent. And the um, Irish used to carve turnips, these big turnips they would carve into this playful face, and it was a way for kids to prank people on Halloween night. They... <sighs> 
would carve these scary faces and, and put it by the side of the road or maybe by the uh, cemetery and um, try to, to play jokes on travelers. And uh, It probably derived from a very famous ancient legend regarding a character called Stingy Jack or Trickster Jack, who was a trickster who had cheated the devil three times. And when he finally dies, um, the devil won't take him into hell because he's still mad at him. But he gives him this glowing ember that Jack has to carry in this carved out turnip or pumpkin for eternity. Oh, this conversation's getting spooky. More with Halloween expert Lisa Morton right after this. Welcome back, ghouls and goblins. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio as we continue the conversation on Halloween haunts and spooky stories. Lisa Morton, Halloween expert, is here. I love the fun facts. I really do. The history of Halloween um, is just the most exciting part to me. Do you have any new, unique, food-centric ideas that you could share for celebrating Halloween tomorrow? As you said, you know, every 40 years we see this change or elevation or progression. So what is the the hottest Halloween trend today? Well, I, people are, of course, doing some amazing cakes, which blows my mind. Yes. Um, I'm still a big fan of this sort of traditional pumpkin stew. I love the ones that are cooked right inside the pumpkin, so you get the big pieces of that lovely pumpkin flesh in there with your stew. Hmm. Um, I haven't heard of any really interesting new food trends yet, but I sure would love to. I will tell you, I actually make what is like a savory bread pudding inside a pumpkin, um, a a recipe that has been uh, sort of morphed and passed down from great chefs and is published lots of places and you make it your own. But there is something so succulent and savory about that roasted pumpkin flesh. And I've been uh, attempting to wax poetic in the past uh, previous couple of weeks, Lisa, about everything you can do with a pumpkin, either leftover or seeds or whole in its, you know, beautiful rustic uh, autumn form. So we will continue to elevate the food side of Halloween as you continue to share uh, the history and um, you know the new and wonderful ideas being spread uh, around the globe. That's great. I love that. Sounds fabulous. The, the savory bread pudding and the pumpkin is brilliant. Okay, so I'll bring that to your party, and then you can share all the scary stories. You got a deal. Okay, I love it. Well, a very happy Halloween to you. Thank you for enlightening us to um, what is now, I understand, the second or third largest holiday of the year here in the U.S. Uh, Of course, there is a Super Bowl, football, and Christmas, and then Halloween follows just thereafter. Yes, in fact, it's actually started to surpass Super Bowl Sunday and a few things like even beer sales, amazingly enough. Has it really? uh, Yeah, it's got a ways to go to catch up to Christmas. Okay, Okay, we'll just start celebrating now then. Right. Good plan. (laughs) 
you can learn more about the spooky facts on Halloween and read Lisa's frightening books at lisamorton.com. Lisa, thank you for sharing your passion and a very happy Halloween to you. And to all of you listening, please stay tuned. There's more delicious conversation in your radio right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away. This is where inspiring, entertaining, and delicious conversation abounds. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. So this next culinary discussion is the culmination of an extraordinary endeavor, a magnificent insight into the history of Chinese culture. It's hard to imagine that this husband and wife team could write such a manual. It is a a breath of Chinese cuisine, 700 pages worth and gold leaf lined to boot. It is in the tradition of bestsellers like the Nordic Cookbook and Mexico. It is the next title in the multi-million selling national cuisine series, and it is called China the cookbook. It features more than 650 recipes for authentic Chinese dishes for the home kitchen, and it really showcases the extraordinary culinary diversity of one of the world's richest and oldest cuisines. Regarded as a top culinary authority within China, the author, Kilam Chan and his wife, Diora Fong Chan, have written this manual. Kilam is the son of Mr. Mong Yan Chan, a Chinese journalist and a critic who has had a huge influence on Chinese culinary culture. And I am delighted to be sharing with you this wealth of knowledge. Kilam Chan is here. Kilam, it's so nice to have you. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Uh, It is extraordinary to me to consider the research and the curation of 650 recipes. Uh, Are are you recuperating from the process? Yes, slowly. It really (laughs) does take a little time to to get back to normal. I I could imagine. What what did it take, the span of years, the travel, the research, to to culminate a book like this? Well, actually, before we start writing the book, uh, before we even think about the book, we have been traveling in China for many years, and with work and pleasure and so on. And during our travels, we were able to sample many of China's uh, diverse uh, dishes from all the regions. And as a result, we were able to collect a lot of recipes, information about the culture and the people and so on. So mm-hmm. that really was the foundation uh, upon which we were able to write the book. It's really fascinating to me to read about the history of Chinese food culture. Can you share with us uh, some of that information from the beginning? It really has extraordinary roots. You mean the, the culture itself? Yeah, yes. I mean, the history of, of Chinese cuisine. Well, actually, the, the, the story really went back to about 
oh, I would say about 10,000 years ago, when, when in fact, uh, excavation has unearthed several pieces of very interesting uh, clay uh, pottery. Uh, one is actually ultimately become a pot, one out and the other one become a wok. And the third very important uh, piece of apparatus is the steamer. Hmm. And that was about 10,000 years ago, and really things haven't changed much. And this is really the foundation of Chinese cooking. And, uh, today we use similar uh, appliances in, uh, in every Chinese home. Okay, The wok, of course, people know about, and this is really the key to Chinese cooking. Yes. And so through, through centuries of development, we were able to uh, develop uh, based on different culture within China itself. So, so we have a lot of diversity in China because of different cooking styles. And also we had influences from outside with the opening of the trail of the Silk Road uh, on land and also on sea. So we were able to benefit from, from imports, for example, things like uh, pepper, things like chili and so on, which sort of enriches the Chinese culinary culture. Mm. And we've had a lot of experiences with incorporating what is uh, sort of foreign to China at the time, which is now becoming part of China's culinary culture. I think it's wonderful to consider all the regions in China that you cook from in the book. And I wonder if you would highlight a couple of your favorites, the Chinese cuisine that that you know and love the most. Well, I'm from the South, so very naturally I like steamed fish. <laughs> steamed fish, which, me which too. Pretty much, you know. Uh, our, our daily daily diet, or at least we do it three, four times a week. Hmm. Okay, Cantonese food, of course, is my favorite because I'm Cantonese. Yes. But other than that, there are several regions which are really are my favorites. One, of course, is Sichuan, which is very, very um, popular nowadays around the world because of its spiciness. But beyond that, Sichuanese food is very, very, um, I would say, it's very complex in both skills and also in terms of its flavoring. That's one cuisine I like. It is the astounding cookbook release from the Chan husband and wife team, the definitive cookbook on Chinese cuisine with recipes from all of the country's major cuisines. It is called China, the cookbook. Keelum, I thank you. And I look forward to cooking um, from your extraordinary encyclopedia. Thank you, Jamie. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of gastronomic inspiration to feed your soul. I will leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation for the hour. It's my best idea for fall festivities and my greatest inspiration for Halloween parties. It's a pumpkin keg. Yes, you heard me right. A pumpkin kegger. You can actually pay proper homage to the season by featuring a pumpkin keg at all of your fall fiestas. All you need is a pumpkin left over from Halloween, uh, not one that had been cut for a jack-o'-lantern though, one that you used for decorative measure that is still whole in its entirety. You do cut the top out like you would for a traditional jack-o'-lantern and you hollow it out, clean it out of its seeds and mess. Um, and then you 
buy an inexpensive spigot from a restaurant supply store. You know, those little black spigots that work on, um, on a percolator coffee machine. And you, about two inches from the bottom of the pumpkin, cut a small hole and you insert the spigot into the spot. And then you fill the pumpkin with beer or punch. And you will be a culinary hero because you will be serving from a pumpkin keg in no time. I will post pictures and a tutorial on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. I thank you for listening. I wish you a very happy Halloween. And I hope you continue to eat well. Well.